Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. It's not about fitness. I think he's fit to be president. It's should he be president. I don't think he should be president. You know, I thought he was the right president at the right time. I agreed with a lot of his policies. The problem is, you see, our country is in disarray. Our world is on fire. And you can't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. And Donald Trump brings us chaos. So it's not about being fit. It's just I don't think he's the right person to be president. Nikki Haley is working overtime to try and present that position. Too chaotic. What I bring is a sense of calm. But you've also brought some policy ideas that are, they're not working. They're not connecting. You did say you want everybody to put their name next to everything they write uh, on Twitter. You, you, you said the words. You, you, it was a massive conversation to the idea of violation uh, uh, of privacy. And you, you went back and said, that's not what I said when it is exactly what she said, and then when you went to the debate, Nikki Haley, uh, that that fourth presidential debate there in Alabama, you 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 tried to spin it, and then when discussing the idea of children getting sex change operations, you said the law should stay out of it, and again at the debate, you tried to spin it. He didn't respond to the criticism. It wasn't about the parents' rights and education bill. It was about prohibiting sex change operations on minors. They do puberty blockers. These are irreversible. Talk to Chloe Cole. She went through this. Now she's an adult. She's warning against it. She may never be able to have kids again. That is what Nikki Haley opposed. She said the law shouldn't get involved in that. And I just ask you, if you're somebody that's going to be the president of the United States and you can't stand up against child abuse, how are you going to be able to stand up for anything? That That is the truth. We have it it on video. I said that I said that if you have to be 18 to get a tattoo, you should have to be 18 to have anything done to change your gender. You said the gender. law should stay out of it. We're going we're gonna to get to this in more detail later. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. When she is called out on these things that she has said, she gets remarkably defensive. And, and just for the sake of clarity, on this idea of Everybody has to have their name associated with their profile. When I get into office, the first thing we have to do, social media accounts, social media companies, they have to show America their algorithms. Let us see why they're pushing what they're pushing. The second thing is every person on social media should be verified by their name. That's, first of all, it's a national security threat. When you do that, all of a sudden, people have to stand by what they say, and it gets rid of the Russian bots, the Iranian bots, and the Chinese bots. Um, you want to get rid of a Russian, Iranian, Chinese bots, it's fine by me. But you said what you said. Now, understand that I have stated before that I'll vote for the nominee. And right now, one of the big conversations is that Nikki Haley, in a head-to-head with Biden, crushes Biden. Now, I know that there's polling out there that shows that Trump would beat Biden in a head-to-head. But it is everywhere, this conversation, that the polling shows that Trump could win by a little. Haley guarantees the victory. Doesn't win, beats 
the ever-living snot out of the man. Wall Street Journal poll, 1,500 registered voters. Trump would beat Biden by four points, which is more than enough to cover the 2.2 margin of error. But this poll shows that Nikki Haley beats Biden by 17. Now, that's a compelling, compelling argument. You pick the person who is going to, by every measure, bring you the victory. Why would you risk it? Why would you risk the possibility of something going wrong when you've got so much cover on the other side? Politico, why does Nikki Haley poll better against Joe Biden than Donald Trump? Whole host of reasons why uh, this is. Haley's a stronger general election candidate because Haley has, as she was discussing, less baggage. Of course it matters. Let's not kid ourselves to a segment of the population. Of course it matters. There are more women who will come out to support Nikki Haley. Her conversation about abortion has been much more um, uh, grand and, and, and valuable than, than some of the, of the others. You haven't seen the left even begin to figure out how to pierce that conversation that she's having, even though I don't think the other guys are having bad conversations at all. And she's considered more moderate, so you get more um, possibilities of, of pullover kinds of votes. Now, the polling still says Trump all the way around the board. I do not come to you to say you should vote for Nikki Haley. I come to you to say that the polling does not tell, in my view, a complete story. The polling does not share that there are these issues with Nikki Haley that are now clear and to a base problematic. And I say this as a guy, you know, I I, I talk about Americans for Prosperity and and when it comes to policy, I I dig and and I work with them and I'm going to continue to, but I'm also going to never not voice that I think the endorsement of Nikki Haley was an odd positioning and she's, she's very, very proud, super proud of the endorsement she got from AFP. The activist class to which they are, they're activists. They're out there. They knock the doors. They make the phone calls. They do that work. If, if, I'm, I'm giving you something anecdotal here. Um, yeah, they're not down. I, I would argue, like me, they don't quite understand the purpose of the endorsement anyway. But Haley is, is, is playing much more an establishment game and is seen much more in that that cast than somebody who is down with the activists. And she could talk about being a, a, a Tea Party candidate uh, all, all, she, all she wants. Listen. Here, you know, first I'll tell you, um, just to respond to Ron, I, he continues to lie about my record. I actually said his don't say gay bill didn't go far enough because it only talked about gender until the third grade. And I said it shouldn't be done at all, that that's for parents to talk about. It shouldn't be talked about with schools. In reference to donors coming on board, look, we will take support from anybody we can take support from. But I have been a conservative fighter 
all my life. I was a Tea Party candidate when I became governor. We opposed every single corporate bailout we possibly could. We passed tort reform. We passed one of the toughest illegal immigration laws in the country. We passed pro-life bills. We moved an unemployment from 11 percent to 3 percent. We took on the unions, and we took on Obama when it came to the unions, the Syrian refugees, and everything in between. And so I've had a fight. And so as much as Ron says that, that's not true. But when it comes to these corporate people that want to suddenly support us, We'll take it. But you can, they don't, I don't ask them what their policies are. They ask me what my policies are. And I tell them what it is. Sometimes they agree with me. Sometimes they don't. Some don't like how tough I am on China. Some don't like the fact that I've signed pro-life bills. Some don't like the fact that I may oppose corporate bailouts. That doesn't matter. That's who I am. And that's why the most conservative grassroots group in the country, Americans for Prosperity, endorsed me last week. But it's hard to back that up, Ambassador Haley, when you refer to uh, Governor Ron DeSantis' bills that don't say gay bill. That's leftist talk. They called it the don't say gay bill. It was the parental rights and education bill. Why would you buy in to a leftist talking point and then tell me about the grassroots support? You tell me about donors ask you your uh, views. You don't ask them their views. Reed Hoffman is LinkedIn, and he has supported a tremendous amount of progressive ca- uh, causes. And the story is $250,000 to a super PAC in favor of you. This is an issue. Wait a second. Can everybody take a breath? I hear what the polling is saying. I've discussed this. Is the argument that the base is actually the least important thing to worry about because they'll come along because the nominee is the nominee and it's game over? If so, how do these primaries and caucuses even work? You're saying that you don't care about the national polling, which has you in third place. The Economist YouGov poll, the last poll, 59 Trump, 13 DeSantis, 11 Haley. And right now, she's just barely trailing Ron DeSantis. And I've said she's got a better path than Ron DeSantis because she's got New Hampshire and she's got South Carolina. She's in third place in Iowa right now. In New Hampshire, she is firmly in second place ahead of Chris Christie and ahead of Ron DeSantis, who in the Real Clear Politics average is only at 9% and she's at 187 And then South Carolina is where she was governor. She's at 23 in the last poll. In the Real Clear Politics average, she's at 19.6 to DeSantis' 11.2. Trump is at 49.2. So she does have, as I've described, a path that can get her to the one-on-one fight. But now, if that's the case... She has engaged in a series of conversations that make the activists go, "Uh, uh." and so now the activist is going to choose between her and Trump. She's going to figure she's got enough of the crossover people. She gets enough of the women. She has pulled this way. It makes her formidable. She has said to, to the activist base or to really any base. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not as conservative as you think. She did this. She said this. It's a, it's all super weird. And the reason I bring it up to you 
is that I do think that it is clear that she beats Biden by the bigger margin. I have never doubted this at all. From the beginning, we've said the vast majority of candidates beat Biden. I am very curious to see where her support is going to be. I am very curious because the things that she has said and has tried to spin from, these things are legitimate and serious, serious things. The taking of certain donations from leftists, you can argue, hey, take their money. Some people say you're taking their money. How exactly are you purchased? The whole conversation, the whole uh, free speech, anonymous speech, social media conversation, that's ugly. And you tried to spin out of it, and that's ugly too. So I'm curious if the polling is representative of other uh, uh, of people who look at this. And I'm wondering if there isn't going to be some movement to the negative before Iowa and before New Hampshire. But if she can top three it in Iowa, which she can, and she can top two it in New Hampshire, which she can, she can at least get to Super Tuesday. Nikki Haley has a better path than Ron DeSantis, but Nikki Haley has a real issue with any level of quote-unquote conservative bona fide. And I think that's going to come back to haunt. Now you say to me, Trump's not a conservative. This isn't the game we're playing. Trump's base is Trump's base. Nikki Haley was trying to draw from something. And I think she's done a job of, uh, of excluding those people. And it makes me wonder whether this poll about how well she beats Biden is representative of the people who are like, yeah, she has turned me off in, this la- in these last two debates and with her commentaries. Time will tell. This is Tony Katz today. I won't lie, that poll freaks me out. Freaks me out. 20% of surveyed young adults say the Holocaust may be a myth. And you say to me, oh, so this is about anti-Semitism. No. Gosh, no. This is about another piece of exposing the educational failure in America. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Never mind that there is no Holocaust education maybe requirement in your, in your state or in your municipality. Um, let's talk about the Tulsa Race Massacre, the 1920s. Um, the Tulsa Race Massacre is so absolutely awful, so horrific, because Tulsa, Oklahoma was... Was it was a hotbed of activity as described? Black Wall Street was was the conversation. Yeah, this was nineteen twenty one, and then just a, a full on attack, fully racial attack, the destruction of this of these people and of this area. You know when I learned about the Tulsa race massacre by watching the Watchmen on HBO. That that remake. 
that was done. Which uh, the, the Watchmen is the only comic book that I've ever really read and gotten into, and just just thought it was spectacular, absolutely spectacular. But this version I'm talking about, uh, Regina King, who I think is a world class actress. I think she's spectacular. Always have spectacular actress. Um, that's how I learned about it. How is it possible? that I could be a Gen X guy, I had never heard of it. It had never come up in anything I have ever read or connected with. That's impossible. And I remember seeing this and being like, what are they talking about? Looking it up and saying, what? How did how did this not make it into my, my history books, into my world? And I, I, was, I was stunned. How does the Holocaust not make it into people's worlds. And I was stunned. Less stunned, though, because I more expected that one. I more expect the idea that the Holocaust is not something that is taught. The Holocaust is something that people want to uh, denigrate. As it is more and more in the rear view, more and more people the, uh, of, of, the, of the Nick Fuentes white supremacist uh, style or, or the pseudo-intellectual style saying, well, you see, it's not really how they explained it. It is as awful as it was explained. And thank goodness so much work was done to get survivors on tape and on film and explaining and the preserving of things. Thank goodness that was done because these, these deniers are some of the most sick, twisted people out there. But there are these clear gaps, clear failures in, in, a, in a level of education. And it is why it is so important. And this is going to seem nutty. We can't rely on public education to teach us. I just named two things, both proving the failures of public education, because you would think these are things we should know. These are things that should be part of an understanding of society, the evil that man does uh, against man and why we should be, be focused on not replicating those things, on remembering these things so we don't engage replication, which is why when you see the response to October 7th and Hamas, uh, their terrorist attack against Israel, and you see people saying, well, Israel deserved it. You're seeing uh, people say, well, it really wasn't that bad. Well, you know, it was a false flag. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, did it. Hamas had nothing to do with it. That is, that is the same Holocaust denialism, which is, of course, understood as purposeful. The education is up to us, and the public education has indeed failed us because it's not even a question of a full uh, dissertation regarding the Holocaust. It is about the recognition of how people will engage in lies and deceit to never allow the truth to be discussed, that there is massive hatred for Jews, and you have these progressives who want them dead. Want them dead. Want me dead. And... The truth is, as we know it, because we discuss it, want dead or destroyed or pushed to the side anybody who disagrees with them. Education is up to us. And it's up to us to grab as much of it as we can, no matter how painful it might be, because it helps us build a better society.
This is Tony Katz today. Border funding and Ukraine funding going to go hand in hand no matter what Democrats want. If Republicans are smart, they will keep this up. But if Republicans wanted to do border funding standalone, I'd be fine with it. As long as there was a recognition that the border needs serious help. The border. We keep talking about it. The biggest story in America. The thing we all have to be focused on. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. It's why we've been doing Border Week this week. Border Week presented by Americans for Prosperity, americansforprosperity.org. And I've been talking with the analysts, the policy people, those on the border dealing with the madness. The surge right now is unbelievable. One of the people I spoke with is Sam Peak, P-E-A-K, Senior Policy Analyst for Americans for Prosperity, who engages a conversation about our, our, our border, the need for reform, how it affects the labor markets. He's at this very unique intersection, and I had not heard anybody really discuss it like this. And so my first question to Sam Peak here on Border Week was, what is it that you do? I argue for free market reforms on immigration in ways that protect national security and in ways that meet natural uh, labor demand. Free market principles on immigration. Mm-hmm. Walk, walk me through that. How does that, I mean, because that, that is a mouthful of statements. Walk me through how you explain that out to people in your field and people who are just getting to know the concept. Sounds like I need to work on my eleva- elevator pitch a little bit more. But, but essentially, though, uh, a lot of people are coming here because there's a natural demand for people, either families either employers. There's a lot of people in this country that want to bring people over and can pool their resources to bring people over. And our goal should be for our immigration system to meet what that natural demand is, the demands of uh, American families, the demands of employers, the demands of anybody who wants to sponsor someone and can afford to support them. So and, it's 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 interesting because if we start with the demands of people who want to be here. This isn't the first time I've heard the word demands, but it's it sounds harsh, but it's not meant in that way. I'm starting to to learn that in in the in the vernacular. But then you get to the demands of the employer. So really, you're talking about an, an understanding of what are the needs of the nation and how they might match up with those who want to fulfill those needs. And and so that is a different way of looking at the system because right now we hear so many people discuss the idea of the border is really about being humanitarian. Uh, and you're offering a different look at it. Is your look considered less humanitarian? I don't think so. I think that the difference between my look and other people's look or our look and other people's look is that... Ours is voluntary, and the border is thought of as an, an involuntary thing. People coming across the border, it's, it's, it's unnatural. It's, it's done without people's consent. But you can have a system in place, and this is really how America used to operate, where people could come here if they have a sponsor. 
that sponsor, it can be a business, as we've discussed before. It can be a family or it can be a church. Really, what it should be is uh, people using their natural ties to bring people over. As long as they can afford it, they can pool their resources and afford it, have them go through the background checks. We don't need caps from the government, but the, but the, but just demand from the people. And that, that, that should be ebbing and flowing every year. You know, sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. Whatever it is, though, it should match the demands of people. It, the, what, what we get to see are people who make demands on us as opposed to demands we uh, can make. And this, of course, uh, becomes a legal immigration conversation and the needs of businesses to have uh, workers. That's, that's what we're talking about here. As you walk through this, as you study this, what are the real demands of employers in the United States uh, that makes the need for immigrant labor uh, so instrumental? Well, one example of this is that last year, there were 300,000 available agricultural jobs that were seasonal. Of those, roughly 300 Americans applied for those jobs. And what we're looking and a lot of people like to say that it's because Americans are uh, that Americans don't want to do those jobs and immigrants are only willing to do those jobs. But it's a lot more complicated than that. It's also about where people are willing to live and who's willing to relocate to um, a more remote area, an area with declining population to be able to fill those roles. And, you know, immigrants, by definition, are are naturally mobile and they're going to move to places where they have not built roots because by definition they're leaving their roots behind and moving somewhere else to work and so immigrants are naturally going to go to parts of the country where the labor market is always tight and that there's demand um to walk you through this sure the the, the way this works is that if you if, if you're an employer who needs to hire a worker you have to spend uh, two months recruiting an american for the job on the state labor department's website. You need to interview any American that applies. Um, if you reject the American, then uh, the state department of labor follows up with the applicant and uh, investigates if it's fair or not. Uh, okay. So it, it, I mean, it's a very strenuous process. They have to go through 200 separate rules. Uh, they have to, they pay roughly $10,000 in fees and legal costs on average to bring over one American worker or sorry, one um, foreign worker. So this notion of it being cheap labor, maybe that's true in the, in the illegal immigration sense. But if you're going through the legal process, it's, it's not cheap at all. It's the opposite of cheap. And you would hire an American if they were willing to work. So and, does that, is, is that a process that you advocate for, for changing, that it is expensive to hire somebody who is not an American citizen? I think we can make the system less costly and less cumbersome, but keep some of the procedures in place. Maybe we can modernize the way that they recruit Americans. Maybe we can make it a, a more of a tool that can better draw out Americans who are interested in, for the job. I don't see anything wrong with that necessarily. I don't necessarily think see anything wrong with um, the requirement that you pay the median wage in the local area that Americans make for the same job in the same location. Um, some people will disagree with, with me on that, but I think that it's okay to have those protections. I think it'd be controversial to remove those pr protections, but we can re eliminate all the redundancy behind it. Right now, like I said before, 200 rules, $10,000 in costs, uh, bureaucratic costs just uh, to 
tell the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Labor, Department of State, U.S. Department of Agricultural, all the same information over and over again. Right. Uh, it, it doesn't change talking to Sam Peake. Uh, he does policy on immigration for Americans for Prosperity. It doesn't change a reality for the employer. If they cannot get the American who they would rather have because it would be easier to, to do and actually easier, never mind cost-wise easier, they still need the work done. And so when you talk about 300,000 openings, but only 300 applicants, that's 299,700 uh, jobs that are still needed. How many of those were filled, if, if you happen to have that number? And what is the obstacle to moving down this path, this, this uh, fixing the regulatory path to making this easier to do? It's unclear how many of those were ended up getting, getting filled. Uh, a lot of them were able to use the HOA program in cases where they're not able to use that, though. So you mean you mean visa like program? Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, that, that that's the visa for farm workers. It's called H two A. If they're not able to use those programs, though, they will do other things, like they will stop making a kind of crop, or they'll stop growing a kind of crop that requires hands, and they will uh, they 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 will. Um, Resort to mechanization, not 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 necessarily just resort to mechanization, mechanization, but stop making a crop that requires hand harvesting. Um, so, like apples might be harder, uh, asparagus might be harder to grow. You might just you might just stop growing that crop altogether and do a crop that you can um, easily mechanize. Or if you're just a small farmer, you may forego an essential irrigation project, or you may plow less acreage altogether. You may just go out of business. If you're a large farmer, you just may increase the costs. So there are a lot of ways to do it if, if, if it's, um, if these jobs don't get filled, but none of it is ideal. And, um, you know, and if you're an employer who's willing to work the, to, to look the other way, you might hire illegally. And so the same thing that people say about guns, if you have gun laws that, um, if you have really onerous gun laws, what ends up happening is that uh, only criminals have guns. If you if you make our immigration system so inaccessible for these farmers, it's only the unscrupulous employers employers who get the labor they need, and the ones who hire illegally or the ones who hire illegally are the ones who get penalized. So we are we are not doing uh, the the job search properly. That's an example of where we're doing. Immigration yeah. wrong. We could we could do it right. What's the impediment? Who stands in your way? Democrats or Republicans? Both. I mean, uh, I mean, here's the thing about wow, you said that quick, <laughs> man. That was here's... like right in there. <laughs> here's the thing about immigration: is that regardless of which side of your which side you're on, it's always going to be a bipartisan issue. Either you can be bipartisan in favor of immigration reform, you can acknowledge we have a we have uh, um, a labor shortage. We have uh, a border that is not secure and we have record levels of crossings and we continue to break new records uh, seemingly by the month. And so and that there's a bipartisan consensus from voters to make our immigration system easier to use and uh, our border stronger and less exploitable. But you also have this bipartisan cobble of people from the other side. They may seem like they're opposed. You have one side who wants to legalize everyone and one side who doesn't want to uh, expand immigration at all. They want to cut legal immigration. 
And really, these these two uh, these Democrats and Republicans who want to do nothing and advocating for extreme positions, they're united on doing nothing. And they're bipartisan, even though they're pretending to be hyperpartisan. They're actually working together to make sure that nothing changes. What's the win? If nothing changes, what is the the the, the win uh, policy wise or politically? They get to keep using this as a cudgel. But something's going to give because we have so many communities uh, communities across the country where immigrants are. Um, I mean, they're a vital part of the workforce. They're a vital part of the community even. Uh, immigration is a lot more uh, omnipresent than we typically realize. And once you have enough people in these unstable positions, once you – once you have enough people who are um, who are whose lives are disrupted because nothing has changed. You're going to get backlash. Farmers, uh, landscapers, these people they are very busy. They have businesses to run, but they are uh, if 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 they're going to go out of business, they're going to have a lot more time to go lobby on Capitol Hill and uh, make their voices known. Uh, the common misconception is that it's faceless corporations that want immigration reform. That's one of the attacks that are being used. But oftentimes it's actually the um, it's the small farmer. It's the small landscaper. It's a small bed and breakfast owner who, because of the labor shortage, they're working overtime uh, hours or they're uh, they're having to reduce their hours of operation. Um, and uh, their voices aren't being heard right now because they're normal, ordinary people um, working uh, beyond nine to five. Um, but once, if those people, if you threaten their way of life, if you threaten their, um, if you threaten their standard of living, they're going, I, eventually I do think there's going to be hell to pay if we don't get this done. Uh, have you gotten any movement anywhere? Is there anybody that you've been speaking to or any, uh, is there any movement you can point us to? Uh, regarding this, and have you gotten any pushback that's worthy pushback? We've gotten a lot of acknowledgement that that we need to streamline how we how how the sponsorship process for agricultural workers, for other seasonal workers. Uh, We've had bipartisan working groups say that that we that we need to reform we've had some bipartisan um bills like the higher act introduced by uh tony gonzalez who he has a large district, district along the border and henry cuellar and uh several other democrats and republicans mm-hmm. we've had um we've had reforms on the senate side of the aisle uh one one bill is called the revamp act it's a little known bill that makes it a lot easier for border uh, border security to upgrade their ports, border patrol, their infrastructure is lacking. We built our ports um, at the border before NAFTA, and we have not really undergone a significant upgrade of them since. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we are seeing fentanyl and other, um, and other illicit uh, substances enter the country. We're not able to intercept them. That passed the Senate with unanimous consent last year. Um, Talk is cheap, though. Uh, you know, passing bills are cheap. Uh, it's it's a slow process. It's a um, and Congress has just been Congress has just been uh, 
willing to do too little uh, too late. And so really what it comes down to is we need to be mobilizing people more, more, um, you know, we've been, we've been engaging with these trips at the border. Uh, you've been on one of them yes. and we've, um, we've spoken to border patrol. Uh, we've done another uh, border trip in Yuma, Arizona, where a farmer was angry because not only could he not hire the workers that he needed to hire, but migrants crossing the border were trespassing on his property to evade border patrol. And so, you know, this is a situation where, you know, these border communities are the ones who stand to benefit the most and uh, from immigration reform and lose the most by not even trying. And everybody uh, does benefit from a border that prevents people from coming um, illegally and a system that encourages people to wait in line and come legally. You know, the, 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 the paradigm that people just don't want to um, acknowledge, but is true is that uh, legal immigration and, uh, and border security, they're complementary objectives they're not competing objectives. Sam Peak, senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity, just part of Border Week. I appreciate it. The full interview can be seen over at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. Man, I ran really long, and I apologize for that. But it was a good conversation with Sam Peak, and I don't apologize for that. Let's go barbecue. Let's go bourbon. I've got two books, and they're available for Christmas at Amazon.com. Let's go BBQ. Let's go bourbon. Buy them today. Amazon.com. I'm Tony Katz, and this is Tony Katz Today. Today.